0: This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to find out how you can volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Picture of Dorian Gray by Oscar Wilde As recorded by John Gonzales, www.johngon.com CHAPTER Nine. For years Dorian Gray could not free himself from the memory of this book, or perhaps it would be more accurate to say that he never sought to free himself from it. He procured from Paris no less than five large paper copies of the first edition, and had them bound in different colors so that they might suit his various moods and the changing fancies of a nature over which he seemed, at times— to have almost entirely lost control. The hero, the wonderful young Parisian, in whom the romantic temperament and the scientific temperament were so strangely blended, became to him a kind of prefiguring type of himself, and indeed the whole book seemed to him to contain the story of his own life, written before he had lived it. In one point... He was more fortunate than the book's fantastic hero. He never knew, never indeed had any cause to know, that somewhat grotesque dread of mirrors and polished metal surfaces and still water which came upon the young Parisian so early in his life and was occasioned by the sudden decay of a beauty that had once, apparently, been so remarkable. It was with an almost cruel joy and perhaps in nearly every joy, as certainly in every pleasure, cruelty has its place, that he used to read the latter part of the book, with its really tragic, if somewhat over account of the sorrow and despair of one who had lost himself what in others, and in the world, he had most valued. He, at any rate, had no cause to fear that, THE BOYISH BEAUTY THAT HAD SO FASCINATED BASIL HALLWARD, AND MANY OTHERS BESIDE HIM, SEEMED TO NEVER LEAVE HIM. EVEN THOSE WHO HAD HEARD THE MOST EVIL THINGS AGAINST HIM, AND FROM TIME TO TIME STRANGE rumors ABOUT HIS MODE OF LIFE CREPT THROUGH LONDON, AND BECAME THE CHATTER OF CLUBS, COULD NOT BELIEVE ANYTHING TO HIS DISHONOUR WHEN THEY SAW HIM. HE HAD ALWAYS THE LOOK OF ONE WHO HAD KEPT HIMSELF UNSPOTTED FROM THE WORLD. Men who talked grossly became silent when Dorian Gray entered the room. There was something in the purity of his face that rebuked them. His mere presence seemed to recall to them the innocence that they had tarnished. They wondered how one so charming and graceful as he was could have escaped the stain of an age that was at once sordid and sensuous. He himself, on returning home from one of those mysterious and prolonged absences, that gave rise to such strange conjecture among those who were his friends, or thought that they were so, would creep upstairs to the locked room, open the door with the key that never left him, and stand, with a mirror, in front of the portrait that Basil Hallward had painted of him, looking now at the evil and aging face on the canvas, and now at the fair young face that laughed back at him from the polished glass. The very sharpness of the contrast used to quicken his sense of pleasure. He grew more and more enamored of his own beauty, more and more interested in the corruption of his own soul. He would examine with minute care, and often with a monstrous and terrible delight, the hideous lines that seared the wrinkling forehead, or crawled around the heavy sensual mouth, wondering sometimes which were the more horrible, the signs of sin, or the signs of age he would place his white hands beside the coarse bloated hands of the picture and smile he mocked the misshapen body and failing limbs there were moments indeed at night when lying sleepless in his own delicately scented chamber or in the sordid room of the little ill-famed tavern near the docks which under an assumed name and in disguise it was his habit to frequent HE WOULD THINK OF THE RUIN HE HAD BROUGHT UPON HIS SOUL, WITH A PITY THAT WAS ALL THE MORE POIGNANT BECAUSE IT WAS PURELY SELFISH. BUT MOMENTS SUCH AS THESE WERE RARE. THE CURIOSITY ABOUT LIFE THAT, MANY YEARS BEFORE, LORD HENRY HAD FIRST STIRRED IN HIM, AS THEY SAT TOGETHER IN THE GARDEN OF THEIR FRIEND, SEEMED TO INCREASE WITH GRATIFICATION. THE MORE HE KNEW, THE MORE HE DESIRED TO KNOW. "'he had mad hungers that grew more ravenous as he fed them. "'Yet he was not really reckless. "'At any rate, in his relations to society, "'once or twice every month during the winter, "'and on each Wednesday evening while the season lasted, "'he would throw open to the world his beautiful house, "'and have the most celebrated musicians of the day "'to charm his guests with the wonders of their art. "'His little dinners in the setting of which Lord Henry always assisted him, were noted as much for the careful selection and placing of those invited, as for the exquisite taste shown in the decoration of the table, with its subtle symphonic arrangements of exotic flowers and embroidered cloths, and antique plate of gold and silver. Indeed, there were many, especially among the very young men, who saw, or fancied that they saw, in Dorian Gray the true realization of a type of which they had often dreamed in Eton or Oxford days, a type that was to combine something of the real culture of the scholar with all the grace and distinction and perfect manner of a citizen of the world. To them, he seemed to belong to those whom Dante describes as having sought to make themselves perfect by the worship of beauty. Like Gautier, he was one for whom the visible world existed. And certainly, to him, life itself was the first, the greatest of the arts. And for it, all the other arts seemed to be but a preparation. Fashion, by which it is really fantastic, comes for a moment universal. And dandyism, which, in its own way, is an attempt to assert the absolute modernity of beauty had, of course, their fascination for him. His mode of dressing, and the particular styles that he affected from time to time, had their marked influence on the young exquisites of the Mayfair balls and the Pall Mall Club windows, who copied him in everything that he did, and tried to reproduce the accidental charm of his graceful, though to him only half-serious, fopperies. For, while he was but too ready to accept the position that was almost immediately offered to him on his coming of age, and found, indeed, a subtle pleasure, in the thought that he might really become to the London of his own day what to imperial Neronian Rome the author of the Satyricon had once been, yet in his inmost heart he desired to be something more than a mere arbiter elegantarium. To be consulted on the wearing of a jewel, or the knotting of a necktie, or the conduct of a cane, he sought to elaborate some new scheme of life that would have its reasoned philosophy and its ordered principles, and find in the spiritualizing of the senses its highest realization. The worship of the senses has often, and with much justice, been decried men feeling a natural instinct of terror about passions and sensations that seem stronger than ourselves, and that we are conscious of sharing with the less highly organized forms of existence. But it appeared to Dorian Gray that the true nature of the senses had never been understood, and that they remained savage and animal merely because the world had sought to starve them into submission, or to kill them by pain, instead of aiming at making them elements of a new spirituality, of which a fine instinct for beauty was to be the dominant characteristic. As he looked back upon man moving through history, he was haunted by a feeling of loss. So much had been surrendered, and to such little purpose. There had been mad, willful rejections, monstrous forms of self-torture and self-denial, whose origin was fear, and whose result was a degradation infinitely more terrible than the fancied degradation from which, in their ignorance, they had sought to escape, nature in her wonderful irony driving the anchorite out to herd with the wild animals of the desert, and giving to the hermit the beasts of the field as his companions. Yes, there was to be, as Lord Henry had prophesied, a new hedonism that was to recreate life, and to save it from that harsh, uncomely Puritanism that is having, in our own day, its curious revival. It was to have its service of the intellect, certainly. It was never to accept any theory or system that would involve the sacrifice of any mode of passionate experience. Its aim, indeed, was to be experience itself, and not the fruits of experience, sweet or bitter as they might be. Of the asceticism that deadens the senses, as of the vulgar profligacy that dulls them, it was to know nothing. But it was to teach man to concentrate himself upon the moments of a life that is itself but a moment. There are few of us who have not sometimes wakened before dawn, either after one of those dreamless nights that make one almost enamored of death, or one of those nights of horror and misshapen joy, when through the chambers of the brain sweep phantoms more terrible than reality itself, an instinct with that vivid life that lurks in our grotesques, and that lends to Gothic art its enduring vitality, This art being, one might fancy, especially the art of those whose minds have been troubled with the malady of reverie. Gradually white fingers creep through the curtains, and they appear to tremble. Black fantastic shadows crawl into the corners of the room and crouch there. Outside there is the stirring of birds among the leaves, or the sound of men going forth to their work or the sigh and sob of the wind coming down from the hills and wandering round the silent house, as though it feared to awake the sleepers. Veil after veil of thin, dusky gauze is lifted, and by degrees the forms and colors of things are restored to them, and we watch the dawn remaking the world in its antique pattern. The wan mirrors get back their mimic life, The flameless tapers stand where we have left them, and beside them lies the half-read book that we had been studying, or the wired flower that we had worn at the ball, or the letter that we had been afraid to read, or that we had read too often. Nothing seems to us changed. Out of the unreal shadows of the night come back the real life that we had known. We have to resume it where we had left off. And there steals over us a terrible sense of the necessity for the continuance of energy in the same wearisome round of stereotyped habits, or a wild longing it may be, that our eyelids might open some morning upon a world that had been refashioned anew from our pleasure in the darkness, a world in which things would have fresh shapes and colors, and be changed— or have other secrets, a world in which the past would have little or no place, or survive, at any rate, in no conscious form of obligation or regret, the remembrance even of joy having its bitterness, and the memories of pleasure, their pain. It was the creation of such worlds as these that seemed to Dorian Gray to be the true object, or among the true objects, of life. And in his search for sensations that would be at once new and delightful, and possess that element of strangeness that is so essential to romance, he would often adopt certain modes of thought that he knew to be really alien to his nature, abandon himself to their subtle influences, and then, having, as it were, caught their color and satisfied his intellectual curiosity, leave them with that curious indifference that is not incompatible with a real ardor of temperament, and that indeed, according to certain modern psychologists, is often a condition of it. It was rumored of him once that he was about to join the Roman Catholic Communion, and certainly the Roman ritual had always... A great attraction for him, the daily sacrifice, more awful, really, than all the sacrifices of the antique world, stirred him as much as its superb rejection of the evidence of the senses, as by the primitive simplicity of its elements and the eternal pathos of the human tragedy that it sought to symbolize. He loved to kneel down on the cold marble pavement, and with the priest, in his stiff-flowered cope slowly and with white hands moving aside the veil of the tabernacle, and raising aloft the jeweled lantern-shaped monstrance with that pallid wafer that at times, one would fain think, is indeed the panis celestis, the bread of angels, or, robed in the garments of the Passion of Christ, breaking the host into the chalice and smiting his breast for his sins, the fuming censers, THAT THE GRAVE BOYS IN THEIR LACE AND SCARLET TOSSED INTO THE AIR LIKE GREAT GILT FLOWERS HAD THEIR SUBTLE FASCINATION FOR HIM. AS HE PASSED OUT, HE USED TO LOOK WITH WONDER AT THE BLACK CONFESSIONALS, AND LONGED TO SIT IN THE DIM SHADOW OF THEM AND LISTEN TO MEN AND WOMEN WHISPERING THROUGH THE tarnished grating THE TRUE STORY OF THEIR LIVES. But he never fell into the error of arresting his intellectual development by any formal acceptance of creed or system, or of mistaking, for a house in which to live, an inn, that is but suitable for the sojourn of a night, or for a few hours of a night in which there are no stars and the moon is in travail, mysticism, with its marvelous power of making common things strange to us, and the subtle antimonianism that always seems to accompany it, moved him for a season. And for a season he inclined to the materialistic doctrines of the Darwinismus movement in Germany, and found a curious pleasure in tracing the thoughts and passions of men to some pearly cell in the brain or some white nerve in the body, delighting in the conception of the absolute dependence of the spirit on certain physical conditions." "'morbid or healthy, did normal or diseased. "'Yet, as has been said of him before, "'no theory of life seemed to him "'to be of any importance compared with life itself. "'He felt keenly conscious "'of how barren all intellectual speculation is "'when separated from action and experiment. "'He knew that the senses, no less than the soul, "'have their mysteries to reveal.' And so he would now study perfumes, and the secrets of their manufacture, distilling heavily scented oils, and burning odorous gums from the east. He saw that there was no mood of the mind which had not its counterpart in the sensuous life, and set himself to discover their true relations, wondering what there was in frankincense that made one mystical, and in ambergris that stirred one's passions and in violets that woke the memory of dead romances, and in musk that troubled the brain, and in champagne that stained the imagination, and seeking often to elaborate a real psychology of perfumes, and to estimate the several influences of sweet-smelling roots, and scented, pollen-laden flowers, of aromatic balms, and of dark and fragrant woods, of spikenard that sickens, of... Hovenia that makes men mad, and of aloes that are said to be able to expel melancholy from the soul. At another time he devoted himself entirely to music, and in a long latticed room with a vermilion and gold ceiling, and walls of olive-green lacquer, he used to give curious concerts in which mad gypsies tore wild music from little zithers or grave yellow shawled Tunisians, plucked at the strained strings of monstrous lutes, while grinning negroes beat monotonously upon copper drums, or turbaned Indians, crouching upon scarlet mats, blew through long pipes of reed or brass, and charmed, or feigned to charm, great hooded snakes and horrible horned adders. The harsh intervals and shrill discords of barbaric music stirred him at times when Schubert's grace, or Chopin's beautiful sorrows, and the mighty harmonies of Beethoven himself fell unheeded on his ear. He collected together from all parts of the world the strangest instruments that could be found, either in the tombs of dead nations or among the few savage tribes that had survived contact with Western civilizations, and loved to touch and try them. He had the mysterious Juruparis of the Rio Negro Indians, that women are not allowed to look at, and that even youths may not see till they have been subjected to fasting and scourging, and the earthen jars of the Peruvians that have the shrill cries of birds, and flutes of human bones such as Alfondo de Oval heard in Chile, and the sonorous green stones that are found near Cusco, and give forth a note of singular sweetness. He had painted gourds filled with pebbles that rattled when they were shaken, the long clarin of the Mexicans, into which the performer does not blow, but through which he inhales the air, the harsh toure of the Amazon tribes, THAT IS SOUNDED BY THE SENTINELS WHO SIT ALL DAY LONG IN TREES, AND THAT CAN BE HEARD, IT IS SAID, AT A DISTANCE OF THREE LEAGUES. THE TAPANIZATLI, THAT HAS TWO VIBRATING TONGUES OF WOOD AND IS BEATEN WITH STICKS THAT ARE SMEARED WITH AN ELASTIC GUM, OBTAINED FROM THE MILKY SUBSTANCE OF PLANTS, THE yattle bells OF THE AZTECS THAT ARE HUNG IN CLUSTERS LIKE GRAPES, AND A HUGE CYLINDRICAL DRUM, "'covered with the skins of great serpents, "'like the one that Bernal Diaz saw "'when he went with Cortez into the Mexican temple, "'and of whose doleful sound "'he has left us so vivid a description. "'The fantastic character of these instruments fascinated him, "'and he had a curious delight in the thought "'that art, like nature, has her monsters, "'things of bestial shape and with hideous voices.' Yet after some time he wearied of them, and would sit in his box at the opera either alone or with Lord Henry, listening in rapt pleasure to Tannhauser, and seeing in that great work of art a presentation of the tragedy of his own soul. On another occasion he took up the study of jewels, and appeared at a costume ball as Anne de Joyeuse, Admiral of France, in a dress covered with five hundred and sixty pearls, he would often spend a whole day settling and resettling, in their cases, the various stones that he had collected, such as the olive-green chrysoberyl that turns red by lamplight, the chemophame, with its wire-like line of silver, the pistachio-colored periodot, rose-pink and wine-yellow topazes, carbuncles of fiery scarlet with tremulous Four-rayed stars, flame-red cinema stones, orange and violet spinels, and amethysts, with their alternate layers of ruby and sapphire. He loved the red gold of the sunstone, and the moonstone's pearly whiteness, and the broken rainbow of the milky opal. He procured from Amsterdam three emeralds of extraordinary size and richness of color, and had a turquoise de la vieille roche, that was the envy of all the connoisseurs. He discovered wonderful stories also about jewels. In Alfonso's Clericalis Disciplina, a serpent was mentioned with the eyes of real Jackson, and in the romantic history of Alexander he was said to have found snakes in the Vale of Jordan with collars of real emeralds growing on their backs. There was a gem in the brain of the dragon, Philostratus told us, and by the exhibition of gold letters and a scarlet robe the monster could be thrown into a magical sleep and slain. According to the great alchemist Pierre de Boniface, the diamond rendered a man invisible, and the agate of India made him eloquent. The Cornelian appeased anger, and the hyacinth provoked sleep and the amethyst drove away the fumes of wine. The garnet cast out demons, and the hydropicus deprived the moon of her color. The selenite waxed and waned with the moon, and the melosius that discovers thieves could be affected only by the blood of kids. Leonardus Camillus had seen a white stone taken from the brain of a newly killed toad, that was a certain antidote against poison. The bezor that was found in the heart of the Arabian deer was a charm that could cure the plague. In the nests of Arabian birds was the aspilates that, according to Democritus, kept the wearer from any danger of fire. The king of Ceylan rode through his city with a large ruby in his hand as the ceremony of his coronation. The gates of the palace of John the priest were made of sardius, with the horn of the horn-snake inwrought, so that no man might bring poison within. Over the gable were two golden apples, in which were two carbuncles, so that the gold might shine by day and the carbuncles by night. In Lodge's strange romance, A Marguerite of America... It was stated that in the chamber of Marguerite were seen all the chaste ladies of the world, chaste out of silver, looking through fair mirrors of chrysolites, carbuncles, sapphires, and green emeralds. Marco Polo had watched the inhabitants of Zapango place a rose-colored pearl in the mouth of the dead, A sea monster had been enamored of the pearl that the diver brought to King Peroses, and had slain the thief, and mourned for seven moons over his loss. When the Huns lured the king into the great pit, he flung it away, Procopius tells the story. Nor was it ever found again, though the emperor Anastasius offered five hundred weight of gold pieces for it. The king of Malabar had shown a Venetian a rosary of one hundred and four pearls, one for every god that he worshipped. When the duke de Valentinois, son of Alexander the VI, Sixth, visited Louis the Twelfth of France, his horse was loaded with gold leaves, according to Brantome, and his cap had double rows of rubies that threw out a great light. Charles of England had ridden in stirrups hung with three hundred and twenty-one diamonds. Richard II had a coat, valued at thirty thousand marks, which was covered with ballast rubies. Hall described Henry VIII, on his way to the tower previous to his coronation, as wearing a jacket of raised gold. The placard, embroidered with diamonds and other rich stones, and a great baudaric about his neck of large balaces. The favourites of James I wore earrings of emeralds set in gold filigrane. Edward II gave to Piers GEVESTON a suit of red gold armor studded with Jacksons, and a collar of gold roses set with turquoise stones and a skull cap parsem with pearls. Henry the Second wore jeweled gloves reaching to the elbow, and had a hawk glove set with twelve rubies and fifty-two great pearls. The ducal hat of Charles the Rash, the last Duke of Burgundy of his race, was studded with sapphires and hung with pear-shaped pearls. How exquisite life had once been! How gorgeous in its pomp and decoration! Even to read of the luxury of the dead was wonderful. Then he turned his attention to embroideries, and to the tapestries that performed the office of frescoes in the chill rooms of the northern nations of Europe. As he investigated the subject, and he always had extraordinary faculty of becoming absolutely absorbed for the moment in whatever he took up, He was almost saddened by the reflection of the ruin that time brought on beautiful and wonderful things. He, at any rate, had escaped that. Summer followed summer, and the yellow jonquils bloomed and died many times, and nights of horror repeated the story of their shame. But he was unchanged. No winter marred his face or stained his flower-like bloom, how different it was with material things. Where had they gone to? Where was the great crocus-colored robe on which the gods fought against the giants that had been worked for Athena? Where the huge velarium that Nero had stretched across the Colosseum at Rome, on which were represented the starry sky, and Apollo driving a chariot drawn by white gilt-reined steeds? He longed to see the curious table-napkins wrought by Elagabalus, on which were displayed all the dainties and viands that could be wanted for a feast, the mortuary-cloth of King Chilperic, with its three hundred gold beads, the fantastic robes it excited with indignation of the Bishop of Pontus, and were figured with lions, panthers, bears, dogs, forests, rocks-hunters, all, in fact, that a painter can copy from nature. And the coat that Charles of Orléans once wore, on the sleeves of which, were embroidered the verses of a song beginning, Madame, je suis ton the musical accompaniment of the words being wrought in gold thread, and each note, a square shape, in those days, formed with four pearls. He read of the poem that was prepared at the palace at Rhine, for the use of Queen Joan of Burgundy, and was decorated with thirteen hundred and twenty-one parrots, made embroidery, and blazoned with the king's arms and five hundred and sixty-one butterflies, whose wings were similarly ornamented with the arms of the queen, the whole worked in gold. Catherine de' Medici's, had a morning bed made for her of black velvet powdered with crescents and suns, its curtains were of damask with leafy wreaths and garlands figured upon a gold and silver background, and fringed along the edges with broideries of pearls, and it stood in a room hung with rows of the queen's devices in cut black velvet upon cloth of silver. Louis the Fourteenth had gold embroidered keratides. 15 feet high in his apartment. The state bed of Sobieski, king of Poland, was made of Smyrna gold brocade embroidered in turquoises with verses from the Koran. Its supports were of silver gilt, beautifully chased, and profusely set with enameled and jeweled medallions. It had been taken from the Turkish camp before Vienna, and the standard of Mohammed had stood under it. And so, for a whole year, he sought to accumulate the most exquisite specimens that he could find of textile and embroidered work, getting the dainty Delhi muslins, finely wrought with gold-thread palmates, and stitched over with iridescent beetles' wings, the daca gauzes, that from their transparency are known in the East as woven air and running water and evening dew, Strange-figured cloths from Java, elaborate yellow Chinese hangings, books bound in tawny satins, or fair blue silks and wrought with fleur de lis birds and images, veils of laces worked in Hungary point, Sicilian brocades, and stiff Spanish velvets, Georgian work with its gilt coins and Japanese focuses. "'with their green-toned golds and their marvellously plumaged birds. "'He had a special passion also for ecclesiastical vestments, "'as indeed he had for everything connected with the service of the church. "'In the long cedar chests that lined the west gallery of his house "'he had stored away many rare and beautiful specimens "'of what is really the raiment of the Bride of Christ.' who must wear purple and jewels and fine linen, that she may hide the pallid, macerated body that is worn by the suffering that she seeks for, and wounded by self-inflicted pain. He had a gorgeous cope of crimson silk and gold-thread damask, figured with a repeating pattern of gold pomegranate set in six-petalled formal blossoms, beyond which, on either side, was the pineapple device wrought in seed pearls? The Orphes were divided into panels representing scenes from the life of the Virgin, and the coronation of the Virgin was figured in colored silks upon the hood. This was Italian work of the fifteenth century. Another cope was of green velvet, embroidered with heart shaped groups of acanthus leaves, from which spread long stemmed white blossoms the details of which were picked out with silver thread and colored crystals. The morse bore a seraph's head in gold thread-raised work. The orphreys were woven in a diaper of red and gold silk, and were starred with medallions of many saints and martyrs, among whom was St. Sebastian. He had chasubles also, of amber-colored silk and blue silk and gold brocade, and and yellow silk damask and cloth of gold, figured with representations of the passion and crucifixion of Christ, and embroidered with lions and peacocks and other emblems, dalmatics of white satin and pink silk damask, decorated with tulips and dolphins and fleur-de-lis, altar frontals of crimson velvet and blue linen, and many corporals, chalice veils, and sudaria, in the mystic offices to which these things were put, there was something that quickened his imagination. For these things, and everything that he collected in his lovely house, were to be to him means of forgetfulness, modes by which he could escape, for a season, from the fear that seemed to him at times to be almost too great to be borne. Upon the walls of the lonely locked room where he had spent so much of his boyhood, He had hung with his own hands the terrible portrait whose changing features showed him the real degradation of his life, and had draped the purple and gold pall in front of it as a curtain. For weeks he would not go there, would forget the hideous painted thing, would get back his light heart, his wonderful joyousness, his passionate pleasure in mere existence. Then, suddenly... Some night he would creep out of the house, go down to dreadful places near Bluegate Fields, and stay there, day after day, until he was driven away. On his return, he would sit in front of the picture, sometimes loathing it and himself, but filled at other times with that pride of rebellion that is half the fascination of sin, and smiling with secret pleasure at the misshapen shadow that had to bear the burden that should have been his own. After a few years he could not endure to be long out of England, and gave up the villa that he had shared at Trouville with Lord Henry, as well as uh, the little white-walled-in house at Algiers, where he had more than once spent his winter. He hated to be separated from the picture that was such a part of his life, and he was also afraid that during his absence someone might gain access to the room, in spite of the elaborate bolts and bars that he had caused to be placed upon the door. He was quite conscious that this would tell them nothing. It was true that the portrait still preserved, under all the foulness and ugliness of the face, its marked likeness to himself, but what could they learn from that? He would laugh at anyone who tried to taunt him. He had not painted it. What was it to him, how vile and full of shame it looked? Even if he told them, would they believe it? Yet he was afraid. Sometimes, when he was down at his great house in Nottinghamshire, entertaining the fashionable young men of his own rank, who were his chief companions, and astounding the country by the wanton luxury and gorgeous splendor of his mode of life, he would suddenly leave his guests and rush back to town to see that the door had not been tampered with, and that the picture was still there. What if it should be stolen? The mere thought made him cold with horror. Surely the world would know his secret, then. Perhaps the world already suspected it. For, while he fascinated many, there were not a few who distrusted him. He was blackballed at a West End club, of which his birth and social position fully entitled him to become a member, and on one occasion, when he was brought by a friend to the smoking room of the Carlton, the Duke of Berwick and another gentleman got up in a marked manner and went out. Curious stories became current about him after he passed his twenty-fifth year. It was said that he had been seen brawling with foreign sailors in a low den in the distant parts of Whitechapel, and that he consorted with thieves and coiners, and knew the mysteries of their trade. His extraordinary absences became notorious, and, when he used to reappear again in society, men would whisper to each other in corners, or pass him with a sneer, or look at him with cold, searching eyes, as if they were determined to discover his secret. Of such insolences and attempted slights he, of course, took no notice. And in the opinion of most people, his frank debonair manner, his charming boyish smile, and the infinite grace of that wonderful youth that seemed never to leave him, were in themselves a sufficient answer to the calumnies, for so they called them, that were circulated about him. It was remarked, however, that those who had been most intimate with him appeared after a time, to shun him. Of all his friends, or so-called friends, Lord Henry Wooten was the only one who remained loyal to him. Women who had wildly adored him, and for his sake had braved all social censure and set convention at defiance, were seen to grow pallid with shame or horror if Dorian Gray entered the room. Yet these whispered scandals only lent him, in the eyes of many, his strange and dangerous charm. His great wealth was a certain element of security. Society, civilized society at least, is never very ready to believe anything to the detriment of those who are both rich and charming. It feels instinctively that manners are of more importance than morals and the highest respectability is of less value in its opinion than the possession of a good chef. And, after all, it is a very poor consolation to be told that the man who has given one a bad dinner or poor wine is irreproachable in his private life. Even the cardinal virtues cannot atone for cold entrees, as Lord Henry remarked once, in a discussion on the subject, and there is possibly a good deal to be said for his view. For the canons of good society are, or should be, the same as the canons of art. Form is absolutely essential to it. It should have the dignity of a ceremony, as well as its unreality, and should combine the insincere character of a romantic play with the wit and beauty that make such plays charming." Is insincerity such a terrible thing? I think not. It is merely a method by which we can multiply our personalities. Such, at any rate, was dorian Gray's opinion. He used to wonder at the shallow psychology of those who conceive the ego in man as a thing simple, permanent, reliable, and of one essence. To him, Man was a being with myriad lives and myriad sensations. A complex, multiform creature that bore within itself strange legacies of thought and passion, and whose very flesh was tainted with the monstrous maladies of the dead. He loved to stroll through the gaunt portraits of those whose blood flowed in his veins. Here was Philip Herbert— Described by Francis Osborne in his memoirs of the reigns of Queen Elizabeth and King James, as the one who was caressed by the court for his handsome face, which kept him not long company. Was it young Herbert's life that he sometimes led? Had some strange poisonous germ crept from body to body till it had reached his own? Was it some dim sense of that ruined grace that had made him so suddenly, and almost without cause, give utterance in Basil Hallward's studio to that mad prayer that had so changed his life? Here, in gold-embroidered red doublet, jeweled surcoat, and gilt-edged ruff and waistband, stood Sir Anthony Sherard, with his silver and black armor piled at his feet, What had this man's legacy been? Had the lover of Giovanna of Naples bequeathed him some inheritance of sin and shame? Were his own actions merely the dreams that the dead man had not dared to realize? Here, from the fading canvas smiled Lady Elizabeth Devereux, in her gauze hood, pearl stomacher, and pink slashed sleeves. A flower was in her right hand, "'and her left clasped an enameled collar of white and damask roses. "'On a table by her side lay a mandolin and an apple. "'There were large green rosettes upon her little pointed shoes. "'He knew her life and the strange stories that were told about her lovers. "'Had he something of her temperament in him?' "'those oval, heavy-lidded eyes that seemed to look curiously at him. "'What of George Willoughby, with his powdered hair and fantastic patches? "'How evil he looked! "'The face was saturnine and swarthy, and the sensual lips seemed to be twisted with disdain. "'Delicate lace ruffles fell over the lean yellow hands that were so overladen with rings.' He had been a macaroni of the eighteenth century, and the friend, in his youth, of Lord Ferrars. What of the second Lord Sherard, the companion of the Prince Regent in his wildest days, and one of the witnesses at the secret marriage of Mrs. Fitzherbert? How proud and handsome he was, with his chestnut curls and insolent pose! What passions had he bequeathed! The world had looked upon him as infamous. He had led the orgies at Carlton House. The star of the garter glittered upon his breast. Beside him hung the portrait of his wife, a pallid, thin-lipped woman in black. Her blood also stirred within him. How curious it all seemed! Yet one had ancestors in literature, as well as in one's own race, near perhaps in type and temperament many of them, and certainly with an influence of which one was more absolutely conscious. There were times when it seemed to Dorian Gray that the whole of history was merely the record of his own life, not as he lived it in act and circumstance, but as his imagination had created it for him, as it had been in his brain and in his passions. HE FELT THAT HE HAD KNOWN THEM ALL, THOSE STRANGE, TERRIBLE FIGURES THAT HAD PASSED ACROSS THE STAGE OF THE WORLD, AND MADE SINS SO MARVELOUS AND EVIL, SO FULL OF WONDER. IT SEEMED TO HIM THAT IN SOME MYSTERIOUS WAY THEIR LIVES HAD BEEN HIS OWN. THE HERO OF A DANGEROUS NOVEL THAT HAD SO INFLUENCED HIS LIFE HAD HIMSELF HAD THIS CURIOUS FANCY. In a chapter of the book he tells how, crowned with laurel, lest lightning might strike him, he had sat, as Tiberius, in a garden at Capri, reading the shameful books of Elephantus, while dwarves and peacocks strutted round him, and the flute-player mocked the swinger of the censer, and, as Caligula, had caroused with the green-shirted jockeys in their stables, and supped in an ivory manger with a jewel-frontleted horse, and— as Domitian had wandered through a corridor lined with marble mirrors, looking round with haggard eyes for the reflection of the dagger that was to end his days, and sick with that ennui, that tedium vitae, that comes on those to whom life denies nothing, and had peered through a clear emerald at the red shambles of the circus, and then, in a litter of pearl and purple drawn by silver-shod mules, had carried through the streets of pomegranate to a house of gold, and heard men cry on Nero Caesar as he passed by, and as Elagabalus had painted his face with colours, and plied the distaff among the women, and brought the moon from Carthage, and given her in a mystic marriage to the sun. Over and over again, Dorian used to read this fantastic chapter, and the chapter immediately following in which the hero describes the curious tapestries that he had woven for him from Gustave Moreau's designs, and on which were pictured the awful and beautiful forms of those whom vice and blood and weariness had made monstrous or mad. Filippo, Duke of Milan, who slew his wife and painted her lips with a scarlet poison. Pietro Barbi, the Venetian, known as Paul II., who sought in his vanity to assume the title of Formosus, and whose tiara, valued at two hundred thousand florins, was bought at the price of a terrible sin. Gian Maria Visconti, who used hounds to chase living men, and whose murdered body was covered with roses by a harlot who had loved him. The Borgia, on his white horse, with Fratricide riding beside him, and his mantle stained with the blood of porotto. Pietro Rirario, the young cardinal-archbishop of Florence, child and minion of Sixtus IV, whose beauty was equalled only by his debauchery, and who had received Leonora of Aragon in a pavilion of white and crimson silk, filled with nymphs and centaurs, and gilded a boy that he might serve her at the feast as Ganymede or Hylas. Ezelin, whose melancholy could be cured only by the spectacle of death, "'and who had a passion for red blood, as other men have for red wine. "'The son of the fiend, as was reported, "'and one who had cheated his father at dice when gambling with him for his own soul. Gianbattista Cibo, who in mockery took the name of Innocent, "'and into whose torpid veins the blood of three lads was infused by a Jewish doctor.' Sigismondo Malatesta, the lover of Isotta, and the lord of Rimini, whose effigy was burned at Rome as the enemy of God and man, who strangled Polisena with a napkin, and gave poison to Geneva d'Este in a cup of emerald, and in honor of a shameful passion, built a pagan church for Christian worship. Charles the Sixth who had so wildly adored his brother's wife that a leper had warned him of the insanity that was coming on him, and who could only be soothed by ceresian cards painted with the images of love and death and madness. And in his trim jerkin and jeweled cap and acanthus-like curls, Grinfonetto Baglioni, who slew Astore with his bride, and Sigmonetto with his page, and whose comeliness was such that, as he lay dying in the yellow piazza of Perugia, those who had hated him could not choose but weep, and Atalanta, who had cursed him, blessed him. There was a horrible fascination in them all. He saw them at night, and they troubled his imagination in the day. The Renaissance knew of strange manners of poisoning— Poisoning by a helmet and a lighted torch, by an embroidered glove and a jeweled fan, by a gilded pomander, and by an amber chain. Dorian Gray had been poisoned by a book. There were moments when he looked on evil simply as a mode through which he could realize his own conception of the beautiful. End of chapter 9 Of the Picture of Dorian Gray, by Oscar Wilde, as recorded by John Gonzalez, www.johngon.com.